Well, to some of you, David doesn't need an introduction, but our church is always growing. We look forward to another school year, and the West Institute starts this week, so you'll start seeing some students starting to come in. And uh, we're very thankful. David is my number three son, and uh, he was assistant pastor and worship leader here uh, since about the time he was uh, he's worship leader since about ninth grade, I think. So we, he really developed a lot of our worship styles and music here. But uh, as hard as it is on his, his mother and I to see them clear over there, but we're thankful. God is doing a great work in Germany. And so we want you, we really want you to come back tonight so you know how to pray for them over there and be a part of what God is doing. And we heard a great message this morning in the first service. I trust it'll be the same message this service. David, you come and preach to us. Good morning, church. I had to check my watch because where, where I serve, we say good afternoon because our service is at 2, and so I just, it is still morning. It may still be when I'm done. We'll see. It is a privilege to be here with you and to see so many faces that um, I know, that I've fellowshiped with, that we've served together or live life together here at LVC, some faces that I don't recognize, and some faces that I would recognize, but they're not here and probably should be. So um, anyway, it's a blessing to be here and to see all the great things that God is doing through the ministry and the life of LVC through your life. And, um, and so I pray today that um, God will enrich us and challenge us and sanctify us through his word. Uh, before I continue, I was able to introduce my wife this morning, which is a rarity because she just loves it when I point her out in a large crowd. Uh, but also, um, my brother Jens is here. Is he here still? Jens? There he is, right there in the back. Jens is from, as a member of the International Baptist Church of Cologne. But more important than that, Jens is a very dear brother in Christ to me, and uh, we've spent a lot of time praying together, growing together. And I said, uh, you want to come see my home church? He said, sure. So there he is. And uh, if you get a chance to meet Jens, I know that uh, he would be an encouragement to you. And I'm sure you can encourage him. So he's had a lot of adventures upon arriving. We've lost count. But uh, most importantly, we've had great fellowship uh, with him on the trip. Um, in praying about what I'd like to preach or what... God would have me preach to you, at you, uh, this, this morning, uh, I, had, I had an idea, and I had a thought, and I was preparing for that, but upon arriving on July the 12th, um, God laid another passage on, or, or laid a passage on my heart that I had preached previously in my church um, because of the times, because of where we're at in the world today. The number one question that has been asked to me since I arrived July 12th is, well, how's it going over there? I mean, are you guys safe? Crazy world over there in Europe right now. And it is. It is, it is just unhinged what, the, what sin and what Satan is able to accomplish through wickedness and wicked people. Um, it's horrible. And so it's, it's an obvious question. Are you guys safe? Are you Okay. How can we pray for you? Or we pray for your safety, which I'm thankful for your prayers. They're needed. They're necessary. 
and God is answering your prayers as we serve there. But I would like to answer that question today, do you feel safe? And I would like to answer why I do feel safe and why every believer in every circumstance can feel safe. What I hope to accomplish today, and we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 21. You can turn there with me as we prepare for this sermon. Numbers chapter 21. We'll also be looking at the application and how Jesus applies this passage in John chapter 3. So you can stick a piece of paper over in John 3 as well. But we'll start in Numbers chapter 21. And what I would like you to go away with today is the reality that believers in Christ have the privilege and the opportunity to look up and believe, look up and believe in the saving work of Christ. Not just at the moment that you come to realization and God saves you, but that the remedy for fear in every circumstance, the remedy for hope when it seems hopeless is to look up and believe in the saving work of Christ. This is where we're going to be going today in God's word. Let's pray and ask God to to lift us up today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we love you. And Lord, what an amazing song to sing that we crown him with many crowns. Lord, we look to the future when one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all who are faithful, Lord, you will give us a crown. But Lord, we will simply respond by throwing it down at the feet of Jesus and saying, crown him, Lord of all. Crown him with many crowns. And Lord, that our voices will be among the loud anthem that drowns out every other song except the song of glory of Jesus Christ, the song of heaven for all of eternity. And so Lord, we come now to your word. And I ask that you would take me, your servant, to be filled with the spirit, to speak the truth to your church. This is your church. These are your people. So may I be a steward of your word as we, we look at Scripture today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There in Numbers chapter 21, this is, you find Israel in a pretty difficult situation. I would say a difficult struggle. They've just denied God's promise to go into the land a few chapters before and they're left to wander and God says, this generation will not go into the promised land. And then just one chapter before in chapter 20, they attempt to go into Edom and Edom says, nope, you can't pass through here. And so now in chapter 21 in verse four, it picks up, they have to go south, they have to go around the long way into the Bedouins, a place where it's really hot in the daytime, really cold at night, not exactly a tourist destination. It's a difficult circumstance that they're in. Miriam, who is Moses' sister, a prominent member of this society, has died. Aaron, the priest, the high priest, has died. They've been sought by nations who would battle and war against them. God had shown continues to show himself faithful even to a rebellious people by protecting them and keeping them from destruction from those nations. So now they're beginning to move again. 
And this is where we pick up in chapter four of chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Now, this isn't my sermon, but I would just like to take a moment here to point out. Sometimes when God tells you what to do, it seems and maybe even sounds a little crazy. But here as a man, when God said something, he just does it. Make a serpent, set it on a pole. Okay, I make a serpent and I set it on a pole. What an amazing man of faith. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so we see the people in a very difficult struggle. It's so easy to build kind of a straw man out of the nation of Israel because they were so good at complaining and turning against God and being disobedient. I mean, they saw some amazing things, didn't they? Freed from slavery. They saw the 10 plagues come down on Egypt. And when they're, they're leaving Egypt and they get to the Red Sea, they, they see God part the waters and they dr- go through on dry land. They saw nations that were stronger and mightier than them fall because of the power of God. Wonderful things that they see, and yet they are a people not so different from you and I. And they find themselves complaining because of their difficult circumstances. And they were difficult circumstances. But those circumstances were placed sovereignly by God to reveal what was really in their heart. See, circumstances don't make us angry. Circumstances don't make us bitter. But they do a good job of bringing out those things that are in our heart to reveal where our hope is and where our joy is. Here are people in the desert, in the wilderness, in a difficult circumstance. But not only that is... Because they're in the difficult circumstances, they respond with their hearts and they respond in sin. They sin against God and they sin against the appointed leader God had given them. And not only that is they allowed a lie to penetrate their heart and they believed that lie and it created the wrong emotion and the wrong response. Because it says there, there's no food or water and we loathe this worthless food. You see, they believe the lie that God didn't provide food. There's no food here. Look what you're doing. But in fact, he did provide. How did he provide? Miraculously. By night, what happened? The quail came in. By day, they'd wake up. What was there? Manna on the ground. But instead of seeing how wonderfully God was providing for them, what they saw was something different than they would want for themselves. And so they loathed the very provision God had given to them. They cursed the very thing God gave them for their sustenance, their living. 
And when they despised God providing what they did not deserve, God gave them what they did deserve. He brought death. Now, I hate snakes. Does anybody here like snakes? Okay. God's working on you still. No, it's, they're scary and they're gross. There's a reason why you should fear them because poisonous snakes do exactly what poisonous snakes do. They kill you. And so in the event of their disobedience, says, okay, you want to you curse and reject my provision? Here's what you deserve. And he sends in snakes. And the amazing thing here in this whole picture of the Old Testament, the amazing thing is we see this great moment where the people respond right. In view of their sin, they come and they confess their sin to Moses. You know, this is the last time the people of Israel complain against God in this story. It's a great story. It's the last time. Maybe because all the people that got bit died, those are the complainers. But you see here that you see a change of heart in the nation of Israel at this point up, up for a while now, and even until they go into the land. Because they come and they realize that they are suffering sin. They're, they're suffering the consequence of their own sin. They say, Moses, pray for us. Take, pray that God will take away these snakes because we have sinned against God. So realizing their sin and realizing that their suffering was from their own, the consequence of their decision to sin against God, they come and humbly confess. What an amazing picture. And how does God respond to this? He responds in grace. God provides a remedy, a solution. Let me tell you today, anytime God answers your prayer and he provides a remedy for the struggle you're in, that is all because of his grace. It's simply because he is a God of love and a God full of grace and mercy. And he offers them this remedy and the remedy is not what you'd think. Now, if as a person just normally reading through this story, if you've never heard this story before, before the remedy comes, you would want to conclude in your own mind, well, God has already given them a ceremonial law. They know what a sin offering is. Why didn't God just say, okay, they've confessed, now go kill some, some bulls, some goats, go, go do a sin offering for the people, and then I will take away the, the snakes. If you just read the scripture in line, my mind would want to draw that conclusion, but you see here, God does something completely different from the law that he established with his, his people. He does something completely separate because he wants to make a very important point that you see throughout all of scripture. And that is the remedy for their sin that was brought about by their own consequence is not something they can do, but something he is going to provide. And so he says, build a serpent and put it on a pole. What? The snake is what's killing us. Why would you want to build a serpent, the very thing that they're afraid of that's killing them, and, and, and then that, just look at the pole? I mean, come on, certainly there's a, a, a serum, something we can burn, something we can kill and sacrifice, something we can do so that God will bring about his power. Nope. I want you to build a snake, put it on a pole, and I want people to look at it. And everyone who looks at it is going to live. There was no sacrifice offered, no ceremony, ceremony performed. John MacArthur writes, he says, it was, simple. it was a simple act of the will 
to believe in what God had said. A simple act of the will to believe in what God has said, what he proclaimed their salvation or where their salvation would come. The amazing thing about this story is God didn't answer their prayer. What was their prayer? Take away the snakes. And instead of taking away a snake, he made one more snake. He doesn't take away the snakes. He doesn't take away the thing that was killing him. He provides a a remedy for the poison that was going through their blood. Snakes, maybe they're still there today. We don't know. But God didn't take away the snakes. He provided a remedy for the poison. Now, that's the story. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Let's see how Jesus preaches and teaches this passage. This story starts with a man, a man named Nicodemus. A man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, he's a Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is a teacher, he's a very educated, very intelligent man. He's a teacher of the law. He's a prominent leader in the society in Jerusalem. He's somebody important. From the, 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 the law that he learned to even the clothes that he wore defined that he was working hard to fulfill the law so that he would be considered before God and before all the people a righteous person. This is who's coming to Jesus at night. Now, why is he coming to Jesus at night? doesn't really say. You could say he's coming because he doesn't really want to be seen during the day with that crowd. A lot of pretty sinful people hanging out with Jesus at this time and uh, we'll just wait till evening. I don't really want to be seen around these people. Or maybe Jesus is just really hard to get an audience with, and so he can come by night. He, I'm, he's a pretty important person, so he maybe feels the right to have a private audience with this miracle worker, this great worker of deeds and teacher. And so he comes to him by night in this paradigm of being a hard, faithful, obedient worker of the law working by his own self-righteousness. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. So he's now inviting him into his worldview, his perspective, saying, yeah, you're, you know, you understand, we understand you, we see that you're from God, and I'm educated enough to understand where this is from. And instead of coming into this conversation, conversation, Jesus decides to change the paradigm. We're not going to look at this. We're not going to have this conversation through your perspective. I would now like to rock your world a little by changing your perspective so you can see things through the way I see things, the way God sees things. And this is what he does here. So he responds to him by not responding to his statement. He says, no one is born again. Or unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's his truth statement to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds, I think, very sarcastically. It's kind of funny. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, 
Truly, truly, I like that. We don't really say that. He's saying, listen to what I'm saying. This is important. That's what truly, truly means. Listen up now. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. What is Jesus saying here to the man who works so hard to be righteous before his nation, before his people? He's saying, in the same way you had no effort and you did nothing to bring about your physical birth, you do nothing to bring about your spiritual birth. This is the point Jesus is making. He is using a very common illustration of birth. Now, I have five children. And I have had the blessing to see all five of mine come into this world. And I tell you right now, they, had, they did very little effort on their part. Kristen worked pretty hard. There were doctors, there were nurses. Kristen did most of the work. I also was a standby observer in this birthing process. She did the work. Everyone who's here today was born and you had a mother who did the work to bring you into the world. You did nothing. What Jesus is saying, you did nothing to be born in this world. And in the same way, you do nothing to be born again into the kingdom of heaven. It is all the spirit of God based upon the will of God. You can't control the spirit. It's all him, not you. That's what he's saying. And this is why Nicodemus responds and says, how can these things be? Nicodemus was not confused about the illustration. He was still not lost. He asked the question because now they are having a conversation in a new paradigm, God's paradigm. And he's saying, wait a minute, I've worked. I have striven. I have, a, I have achieved. I have held the law. And now you're saying that it's all the spirit and not of me. I have nothing to do with it. How can these things be? This is what Nicodemus is saying. And Jesus responds and says, are you a teacher of Israel, then yet you do not understand these things? You're the teacher and you don't understand it. Imagine what your pupils are thinking. You don't understand it. And yet the word of God has been given to you and you don't understand the very scripture that God has given to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. If I have told you a simple illustration of new life through birth and you don't understand, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. You're not going to work to earn anything to get to heaven. The only one who completes work and who, does, and who ascends into heaven is the one who descended from heaven. Jesus is claiming he's the only one with the authority He's the only one who has come from heaven with the truth. He's not speaking from a second. He didn't learn this from somebody else. He didn't sit at the feet of another rabbi. He is a primary source because he comes directly from heaven. And he's saying, you're not going to earn it. Nothing you can do can achieve this. And then he applies Numbers 21 there in verse 14. And he, the comparison here is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life.
The people of Israel were dying because of the consequence of their decision to, to turn against God and his leader, to sin. And snakes came in and they were dying. And so he builds a serpent and he puts it on a pole so that everyone, no matter where they are in the camp, can look at that serpent and live. And he's saying, you see, you too can do nothing and you're dying because of your sin. And the only thing you can do is when the Son of Man is lifted up, you can look and believe and that's it. That's how Jesus applies that text to the life of Nicodemus and it is applied to you and to me this morning. Right here and now, we all live in a struggle. I don't know a lot of you, and even the ones I know, I don't know everything going on in your life, but you live in a struggle, maybe a personal wilderness that you're dealing with right now. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, and I mean this by you don't really know for sure if you are a child of God, if you belong to him, if you die today, if you're going to heaven, if Jesus is your Lord, if you, don't, if you don't have confidence in that, let me begin by saying this. You're dying in your sin and there's nothing you can do about it. If you're a believer today and you want to share the gospel with your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your fellow students, begin with the truth. There's a poison in you. You're a sinner. You're dying in your sin and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Psalm 14, one through three says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul can summarize this, and he does summarize this in Romans chapter three. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality you're living in. If you are here and don't know Jesus, you are not a believer. You are not in Christ. And because of this, there is a consequence. Just like Israel suffers the consequence By God sending in snakes, he gives them what they deserve because they reject what they did not deserve. And the consequence for you rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, is that you're going to spend an eternity separated from him in hell. Jesus said that. You know what your future is if you deny Christ? Everyone who denies Christ, you know what your future is? The Bible says it in Matthew chapter 13. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. This is your reality if you are outside of Christ, if you are of the world. Now, I began my sermon by saying, why don't I have fear? And you're saying, you know, this sounds pretty fearful. But you see, the wages of sin is death is only half the verse, half the verse, because we have to understand that you can do nothing, so God makes provision for you. God makes provision for you by sending his only son to become sin for us so that we might 
be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here lies the comparison between a bronze serpent on a pole and the Son of Man on a cross. Is that serpent represented the very thing killing them, the snakes. The very thing killing you today is your sin. And so God sends his only son who knew no sin to become sin. And he raises it up so that all who see and believe might be saved. Galatians chapter three, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so where are we at today? How do we respond to the reality that you're a sinner and you can do nothing about it? How do you respond to knowing that God, seeing your sin, even while you were an enemy of the cross, he died for you? As you can be a confessor. Just like Israel said, we have sinned against God. Help us. This is how God wants you. He doesn't want you to work harder to change your life so you can become a better person that he can use. Because no matter how hard you work to become a better Christian, you still stink. And it's worthless. You're worthless to God because you are trying to do something in your sin and he despises sin. But he loves you so much, he came and became that despicable sin for you. And your response is, is by doing the only thing you can do, and that's admitting you can't do anything. And you believe and you confess that God is Lord. Christ, you are Lord of my life. I am a sinner. I can't do anything, but you have done it all, and I believe it. I believe that Jesus and his work on the cross is efficient and sufficient for my salvation. You just come as you are. You confess that you're a sinner. And if you think you're a bad one, trust me, you're worse than you think you are. But he wants you just like that, confessing and believing that he is the only way. And his work is the only work that is the right work to lead you to Christ. This is how, this is how we understand this text. And so Jesus continues there. In the verse that we all know, you see at baseball games, as a son of man, or as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that all who believe in him will live and believe, will have eternal life. And then he says, for God, this is the truth statement now, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. So as somebody visiting, or maybe you've come here a few times, but you're not a believer, God's speaking to your heart today. And it's the gospel message that even though there's nothing you can do about it, and even though you don't deserve it, 
Christ died for you. I'm not preaching a, a, a prayer of salvation to you. I don't believe, and I don't see it in Scripture, and because I don't see it in Scripture, I, I, I can't preach that. But I believe someone who, who is a believer, when God puts that belief in your heart, what I do believe is that you start praying. You become a confessor. You proclaim Jesus as Lord. You repent from your sin. You no, you no longer want to be a part of the world because he has redeemed you from the world. And you can call upon Jesus because he's promised all who call upon me, I will not turn away. And you become a confessor of sin, not just so you can be saved, but as a lifestyle of one who realizes I am a sinner and Christ died for me. And knowing that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You enter into a new paradigm. A paradigm not dictated by your circumstances where you're driven and tossed by the waves of circumstance and sin and the evil against you or the evil that you do. And so Christian, you live in that paradigm. You've been brought from darkness to life if you've believed in the name of the Son of God. If you've looked at the cross and said, yes, Jesus, my Lord, died on a cross for my sin and I believe it and I, I repent of my sin in my life and I proclaim Jesus as Lord. If that's you today, you live in a paradigm that is without fear and so living in fear is, going, is stepping back into the wrong, the wrong life, the wrong worldview. You've been rescued from that. The gospel gives us hope. It grieves me when I look at the news and I read about the, the shooting in Munich and people being stabbed and, hit and, and hacked with axes on trains in Germany. People blowing themselves up and, and shooting people in, 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 in airports and on the streets of Paris and someone getting in a truck and just running over women and children. That's the Europe that I live in, that millions of people live in. And the ter- acts of terror that happen on our, own, on our own soil here in America. Satan wants you to be so afraid because it takes your view off God's reality and puts it on the world's reality and we lose sight of what's true. And that is we can look up and see the cross of Christ. And you know what? We see a risen Savior who's accomplished everything for us. I mean, as soon as I landed, you know, you, you, you go and, and the news is everywhere. I don't get a lot of, I, I get my news through other sources than American news. But, you know, the hot topic is the election. Doesn't seem like anyone's really excited about it. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of fear. A lot of the campaigns, they're, they're, kind of their mantra is fear against the opposing. If this person's elected, then this is going to happen. If this person's elected, they're gonna... the whole place is going to fall apart. What's going to happen? Well, as a Christian, you can say, well, God said it's going to, so probably. Most definitely. But that's not the worldview. That's not the paradigm that we view our life through. It's, it's through the truth that God says... The Son of Man is lifted up on a tree and all who believe in him will have eternal life. There's your hope. And that's why I don't fear. And that's why the, the, the thousands of believers around the world who are not just, who are every day experiencing war 
And they're saying, pray with us, pray with us. And their hope is not in a better government. They've never known a good government, most of them. Their hope is in the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's your hope today. It's my hope. Confessing Jesus Lord and believing he has done everything for your salvation, believing that he is the same in your yesterday, he's the same in your today, and he's, in the, he's the same in your forever. And we can all say with hopeful, steadfast hearts, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. God, you are a, an all-powerful, eternal God of grace, mercy, and love. And we are mortal, fallen, fleshly sinners. And so, Lord, it, no matter how often I study, no matter how often I read these verses of the truth that you became sin so that we would become righteous, I still can't wrap my mind around that. I'm thankful that you've given the faith to believe so that we can have an eternity to grasp the reality of, of an eternal, loving, gracious God. Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you, who were not born again, they're still trying to do something good enough for you. They're still trying to achieve something religious or self-righteous. Lord, I pray that you would break them, stop them in their tracks and show them that they are lost. They're destined for hell and there's nothing they can do about it. But you did something about it that they would just look to you and proclaim Jesus as Lord and confess you as their Savior, Lord, that you would give them the power. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, Lord, we pray that we pray over them, awake, O sleeper, arise, and Christ will shine on you. Lord, as believers, I pray that we would not get so caught up in our environment and our circumstances that we begin to get bitter and even reject and, and, and curse and, and, re, and turn away from the very provision that you have given. You provided. Lord, we can look to your word, we can look to our lives, and we can see over and over and over again where God has provided. Lord, that we would, like Israel, when we have sinned, come on our knees and confess and say, Lord, only you. And so we look to the cross of Christ today and that we would believe, we would live in that belief which gives us hope to know that in the end, sin doesn't win. The victor is Jesus Christ. Amen.